You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 23. Acts 13, 16, 16 through 23. Please stand for the reading of the word. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. This is the word of the Lord. And our Old Testament reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel 15 verses 17 through 23. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. I ask now, God, that you would take up your word and you would wield it among us in such a way that we might trust you. You'd keep us from the sins of presumption. You'd you'd keep us from the sin of arrogance. You'd keep us from forsaking the word of the Lord that we might trust you and obey you and love you. You'd teach us from the lesson of Saul, prepare us to receive David, 
And help us now to study this word. In your name we pray, amen. So today we are going to pick up the pace. Uh, Today we're going to get all the way through uh, 14 and chapter 15. We have an enormous amount of ground to cover. Um, So I want to kind of, because we have so much ground to cover, I want to take a whole bunch of time right up here at the front uh, before we get into all that ground. Um, The the fact is is that we've arrived at kind of these um, last week's uh, chapter 13, and as we move into chapters 14 and 15, we've arrived at the fall of Saul. Um, Things went really, really well for about a chapter. Um, and now things have, are, have started to unravel for Saul. And we're going to see um, that there are, have been and are three fundamental sins um, that kind of mark the destruction of Saul and the end of his reign um, as king over Israel. Um, last week we looked at the first of those sins um, in which he presumed to offer a sacrifice, uh, which he was forbidden from doing as king. He was instructed to wait for the arrival of Samuel um, for the prophet to come and offer those sacrifices. Um, and then he was then to go and make war against the Philistines um, and fight their enemies. He did not wait. He was panicked, um, saw people leaving the camp. And so he decides uh, to offer the sacrifices just before Samuel gets there. Um, and so he takes a presumptuous sin, presumptuous stand, um, believing if I can just kind of check the boxes Um, get through the worship service the right way, um, then God will be with us as we fight our enemies. Um, And so casting aside the explicit instructions of God and instead doing his own thing. This week in chapter 14, we um, we see the foolishness of Saul, um, in particular in taking a vow that will cost him everything. Um, Then in chapter 15, we see his most serious sin, in which he does not do what the Lord commands. And so we're going to be looking at those two chapters, looking um, more closely at chapter 15 in particular, um, but I want to uh, be looking for a handful of things as we kind of walk through. Uh, first thing we're going to do is just walk through what happens um, in, for, at, at, a, at a pretty high level um, between chapter 14 and 15, and then we're going to break it down and just draw some things out for us to observe and look at. But as we do so, you should notice, um, again, one of the themes that, that is going to get played out for us is, is, is the contrast between Saul and David, and even more um, immediately in these texts, the contrast between um, Jonathan, his son, and Saul. So, so that contrast is Jonathan is kind of a precursor to David. And we talked last week about there's nothing negative or critical at all said in all of Scripture about Jonathan. From everything we have in the Bible, he was a very noble and virtuous and godly man who did what God commanded him to do, and he had a terrible father. So if you're here today and you had a terrible father, be of good courage. You can be Jonathan. Um, And so one of the contrasts that we're going to see playing out, particularly in chapter 14, is this contrast between Jonathan and Saul. But as we head into it, I want to kind of get in front of you the punchline of where all of this is going to, we're going to to try, I'm going to try, uh, to pull everything that's going to happen in these two chapters um, together into the punchline of these two chapters. Um, And I just want to give it to you right up front. We just read it, but I want to set it in front of you so it's sitting right there in front of your your brain. Chapter 15, verse 22. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 
at the heart of the story of Saul, the tragedy of Saul, is a man who would not listen to the Lord, who would not obey the Lord. At the heart of much of the the tumult and controversy and confusion, and I would say powerlessness, the modern American church, perhaps our church, is a failure to understand that to obey is better than your offerings. To hear the words of God and to do them is better than your worship services, better than your sacrifices, better than your offerings. That's the punchline. Now let's tell the joke. So what happens? How does this whole thing start to unfold? So so things um, ended poorly in chapter 13 and then we get to chapter 14 um, and we have this explicit contrast going on between Jonathan and Saul. Um, Both of them have received the same instructions from the Lord. Go fight Philistines. Which, by the way, is what Christians are supposed to do. People of God are always supposed to fight the Philistines. So if you see Philistine, fight them. And so here's Jonathan and Saul, and they are supposed to fight the Philistines, and there's two different responses. Jonathan has himself and his armor bearer. Saul has 600 people. Everybody else has kind of abandoned Saul. They're all hiding in tombs and in the hills. They've taken off. Remember that from last week. That's the situation. Philistines, 30,000 people. Soldiers, ready to kill them. So that's the scenario. And the word that's been given to Saul and to Jonathan is, go fight them. You can imagine, again, we talked about last week, just have just a moment of sympathy for Saul. You've got 600 men. All your ARs have been taken from you by the invading powers, the Philistines. All you have is your shovel, probably a plastic shovel, because you never know what you could do with a pointy shovel. You have maybe a rake. You have no weapons. The only person that has a weapon is Saul and Jonathan. And you're scared. So what unfolds in chapter 14 is we see Saul bumbling about, not sure how to, how to proceed, has no idea what to do. Um, Samuel um, has departed from him. Actually, speaking like this offering of the sacrifice was wrong, has taken off, and Saul is sitting here trying to figure out, will somebody tell me what I'm supposed to do here? When God had already told him what to do. Jonathan doesn't know exactly how he's supposed to go about this thing, um, but he knows that he's supposed to fight Philistines. So what does he go and do? Goes and fights Philistines. Supposed to fight them, there's 30,000 of them, that means there's a lot. There's a lot of them we can, we can get. There's going to be no shortage of Philistines to kill. There's a lot of them. And there's only 300, 300 of us, or 600 of us. So we go after them, we'll each get to kill a lot. So what does he do? He says, hey, let's go get them. So climbs into, uh, climbs over uh, uh, into a ravine and back up the other side. Um, it, it's an interesting um, uh, 
Peter Leinhardt's pointed out uh, the name of the two sides of this ravine. The, the text gives us the name, which is kind of strange uh, to give us kind of that geographical detail. But the, um, the, the one that, that Jonathan goes down is called Bramble. In other words, it was a mess. Um, and then the one that he goes up is called Shining or Bright. Um, and so you get this picture of going down into difficulty, um, going down into pain, going down into resistance, and then coming up and um, being raised. You have even here in this text uh, this image of death and resurrection. Jonathan, with his armor bearer, goes, um, says, hey, let's go over there, get these guys. Um, the Philistines see them coming, so you've got Jonathan and his armor bearer at a bit of a disadvantage. Uh, and they say, <laughs> I love this. Philistines are seeing him coming. It's just two of them. They've got a whole, whole bunch of people sitting on this cliff. And they say, come on up here. We'll show you something. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's kind of like pick a fight, you know? Like, here's the Philistines. Feel pretty secure. There's two guys coming towards them. So they yell down to Jonathan and his armor bearer. Hey, if you come on up here, we're going to show you some stuff. Like our swords. Um, really up close. So Jonathan and the armor bearer, see the Philistines up, they hear the Philistines taunt them, and what is Jonathan's response? We're really going to get them now. <laughs> it's great. So look, look at verse 12 of chapter 14. This is, you have to see this, this is fantastic. <clears throat> and the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us, we'll show you a thing. <laughs> and Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. <laughs> You're at a tactical disadvantage. You've got one weapon between the two of you. You've got a whole garrison of soldiers standing over you at the top of this ravine. You're climbing to get to them. They see you coming. They're taunting you, ready for you to come up, because they're going to kill you when you get up there. And what is Jonathan's response to this set of circumstances? We're going to wipe these guys out. So, contrast is with Saul. Saul's still sitting there. Doesn't know what to do. Trying to figure out what to do. I mean, I know God said I'm supposed to go fight the Philistines, but do I really go fight the Philistines? I mean, surely there's some other thing that we're going to do here. Um, maybe we should, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe we should have a little worship service and we should do this thing. I'm not quite sure what's going to go on. Jonathan, we should fight Philistines. Let's go fight Philistines. Even at severe disadvantage, and we're going to fight Philistines with a great deal of faith. Faith says, even though we're outnumbered, we're in a tactically disadvantaged position. Um, they're mocking us, going to tell us they're going to kill us. All the more do we know that God's going to give us victory over them. So when you know it, Jonathan's armor bearer get up there. They kill 20 of them really, really fast. <laughs> and the whole, um, the whole garrison and the whole Philistine army falls into chaos. They start running. They start killing each other. Um, just everything erupts. There's sheer panic uh, because Jonathan has come uh, with his armor bearer. Um, God even kind of throws in an earthquake uh, to, to get things going really good. Um, and then Saul, looking over, um, <laughs> looking over at what's happening, um, sees that the, the whole camp of the Philistines has fallen into chaos and everything's, something's going on there and literally says, something's going on over there. <laughs> the text is... Bible's wonderful. There's little turns of phrase. Like, oh, they're killing each other. And the earth is shaking. This is, something must be happening. And so, um, 
Saul then gives us his rash vow, his stupid vow. He sends his people to pursue the Philistines, chase them. Things are going really, really well. All the Israelites who'd gone into hiding, who'd fled, are coming out of their, their caves, they're coming out of hiding to chase after the Philistines, to get after it. Um, and then in the midst of all of that, um, Saul doesn't want them to stop. He wants them to keep going, pursue them to the uttermost, kill the en- these enemies. But listen to what Saul says. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. He makes a tactical error here. Find out that the the men are faint, tired, starving. Their king has sworn an oath. No one is, everyone is forbidden from eating. And if they eat before the end of the day, before all the Philistines are killed, because they are Saul's enemies, it says, and they will be cursed. The day doesn't quite go as well as it could have gone. In the midst of all of that, Jonathan, having not heard the oath taken by his father, um, comes across some honey and eats it. And then things don't go quite so well in terms of it doesn't go as well as it could have gone. And you get to the end of chapter 14. Saul recognizing that things haven't gone as well as they should doubles down on his stupid oath. Draw lots, falls to Saul and to Jonathan. It comes out that Jonathan is the one who ate despite the oath taken by Saul. Look at verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And then Saul said, doesn't just double down, now he triples down and unravels everything. God do so to me and more also. You shall, you shall surely die, Jonathan. So, so here's not an oath and a curse. Here's not just an oath and a curse restated. Here's an oath and a curse and saying, if this doesn't happen, I myself will be undone and killed. As an aside, words matter. Oaths and promises and contracts and covenants matter. We live in a day and age which integrity has been cast aside, which there's a thing called no-fault divorce. Oaths matter. They matter in the sight of God. The men around Saul protest, saying Jonathan shouldn't die. He's the one that worked the great salvation of the Lord for us today. So Saul doesn't kill him. But remember the words of Saul. God do so to me and more also. 
So let me get to chapter 15. Chapter 15, we have the Lord sending Saul via Samuel. Samuel gives the word of the Lord to Saul. Saul is to take the army and they are to go to war against Amalek. Amalek was a people that oppressed Israel as they were traveling through the wilderness. They were coming into the promised land. Um, They oppressed and were wicked to Israel. um, And their wickedness is just compounded. So God is going to send Israel Um, Verse 3, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. On this language of devote to destruction, it's actually, um, it's similar language used to describe uh, the consecration offering. Um, This happens a handful of times in Israel's history um, where God identifies a people, a city, a society and says their sins have added up now to the point you are to be the means of me executing my judgment on this people, destroy them utterly, consecrate them, um, destroy everything about their city. It it should be burned to the ground. Everyone should be killed. All their animals should be killed. Um, This is, you are to be a mechanism of my judgment against this city. Equivalent things you see in scripture are earthquakes. Um, You see floods. You see um, different mechanisms that God uses to judge a people. Um, When you have, this is called the ban. Um, And it is uh, um, uh, an order given by God to his people to to execute and to be the means of God bringing his wrath and judgment in a very real and final way to a particular group of people. So Israel is sent, we'll talk a little bit more of that in a second, but but, um, they're sent, um, Saul is sent with the army to destroy Amalek. Um, He at first does exactly what he's commanded, um, goes to fight against Amalek, the city of Amalek, um, but then he does something, well, not obedient. The people in the army and Saul go in, they kill every, it says, worthless thing, but they save the king, and they save the best of the livestock. Samuel gets a word from the Lord that night, he's not with Saul. That word is, I am sorry I made Saul king. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. But I want you to notice Samuel's posture. He's not brazen, he's not angry, He's not proud. He's not like the guy sitting back waiting to criticize the king. What does he do? Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. So this isn't kind of a neat nick guy. Can't wait to really throw down the gauntlet here with Saul. He weeps. He's frustrated. He's angry. He cries out to God. And then, even in the midst of that turmoil, goes to Saul and says to Saul, Samuel, and what God um, had given Samuel to say to him. Um, what's interesting is that it unfolds as Samuel arrives and Saul says, <laughs> just kind of imagine, uh, Samuel's there, battles happen, everything's unfolded. 
Um, and uh, Saul sees Samuel coming. Sam, um, Saul knows he hasn't done what the Lord told him to do. I mean, after all, there's like sheep and ox, and here's this king. Um, they're all still there. He sees Samuel coming, um, and with a very cheerful de- demeanor, says, Blessed be you, I've done what the Lord commanded. Um, it's kind of like when you tell your children, like, hey, we're going to go out to dinner. When we come home, we really want the kitchen to be spotless clean. And then you come home, and um, greeting you at the door is your child. Hello, mother, father. I have made my bed. I have done that which you have asked. You know immediately if they're greeting you at the door and telling you how blessed you are and that they have done something in the house um, that they didn't actually do what you told them to do. Um, and that's kind of the situation. So Samuel walks up. Uh, Saul says, blessed are you. I did everything the Lord commanded. And then Samuel's response is, then what is this sound I keep hearing? Like I'm hearing these sheep. I'm hearing these oxen. What, what in the world is going on? Samuel then um, confronts Saul. Saul does what Saul does. Blames the people. It's these people, you know, they, they were really enthusiastic. They wanted to have a big worship service. So they thought we would save the oxen, set up the amps and the guitars and really go for it um, and not just waste all these good animals. Then turns, he's twisting in on himself. He keeps backing up. Um, as we've probably all done uh, at some point. Um, he blames the people, but then he also starts passing off his partial obedience as complete obedience. Um, children, here, here's a wonderful lesson in parents. I would encourage you to teach your children this lesson. Partial obedience is disobedience. It's like a famous saying in our home when our children were little. Partial obedience, actually delayed obedience and partial obedience is disobedience. Um, so he does part of what God's asked and passes that off as doing everything that God asks. And then, still backing up a little bit more, starts to explain his real motives. His real motives in this whole thing um, was in you know, being merciful to this king and he really wanted a big celebration of, of, of God and his greatness, so we're going to sacrifice the best of the animals um, as an explicit honoring to God. What's interesting is that um, God had given them instructions um, to, to bring a consecration offering, to make a consecration offering out of this entire city. Um, in the consecration offering, you and I don't get to eat anything um, of that offering. The priests don't eat of that offering. That offering is burned up and belongs wholly and completely to God. But guess what happens in the peace offering? We all get to eat. You see what's happening? So Saul, rather than... Um, burning up everything in the city instead takes parts of it and says, you know what, um, we're going to use this for a peace offering. In other words, we're going to have a big barbecue. We're going to have a worship service barbecue and God said, no, I want you to destroy all of it because all of it belongs now to my wrath. So Samuel, um, Saul backs himself up, makes a whole bunch of excuses or explanations and then the word of the Lord's judgment comes in the passage that we read earlier. The word that comes is, though you were small, you, you, you were little in your own eyes. I exalted you, I lifted you up, and I made you king. But, but now, being king, you've refused to obey my commandments and my law. Samuel is naming the fundamental issue at work 
in Saul right now. When I first called you, you were humble, you were small. You didn't think you were a big deal. You hid among the luggage. You hid when it was time to become king. And then God himself raised you up to be king. God gave you victory over your enemies. God um, established your kingdom, established your authority. And now once that's been established, you have rejected, rejected the word of the Lord. Then the famous text, as the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul then admits his sin, acknowledges his sin, blames again his sin on the fact that he feared the people. People had taken all this spoil. How can I go to them now and make them destroy everything? He's afraid of what the people will think. He's afraid of what the people will do, which is always the case, sin. It's always the root of disregarding the word of the Lord. It's interesting here too, another contrast that we'll see develop with David. The word that Saul uses to describe his sin, even though Samuel says, hey, um, you you are guilty of the worst sins imaginable. Divination, which would come under the death penalty, um, under the law of God. Um, idolatry, which would come under the death penalty, under the law of God. Um, you, you have committed uh, the equivalent of rebellion against God, which is divination and idolatry. He uses um, devastating language to describe the sin of Saul. And Saul uses uh, th- this word that's translated transgressed, which is simply a, a light sin. Like, I kind of screwed up. screwed up because I was afraid of the people but I've sinned I acknowledge it Samuel goes to depart from Saul Saul clings to his robe tears Samuel's robe Samuel sees it as a type of picture the fact that the kingdom itself was being torn from Saul's hands Samuel pleading with him um, at least honor me at least um, again Deeply concerned about appearances. Deeply concerned about what all the other people think. Come back and offer sacrifices with me. Come back and worship with me. Um, don't let the people see that, there's, that, that I've been rejected by the prophet. Samuel comes back, hacks to pieces. Wonderful Bible. Verse 33. Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. Um, and goes back with Saul. So we see here the, the collapse, the blessing of God upon the rule of Saul, unfolding over these two chapters, with devastating consequences for Saul, for Saul's family, and for Israel. The time that remains, I want to talk about three 
theological miscellanies, three things for us to take home from this story. Three theological miscellanies. Things to notice, perhaps be disturbed by. We'll just leave them there in your disturbed state. One, God always accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. We're gonna get into talking about the fact that the language of repentance is used of God and the language that God never repents is used of God um, actually in the same chapter uh, in, in 1 Samuel 15. But the first thing I want you to see is um, the, the end, at the end of the day in chapter 14, though Saul is kind of bumbling about, doesn't know what to do. He actually does some good things. The, the people are starving um, because he hadn't let them eat all day. And they get to the end of the day and they start um, eating the meat with the blood in it, which is not it was something that's forbidden by the law of God. And he stops them from doing that. He does some things that are right. He does some things that are foolish. He does some things that are sinful. He's hesitant when he should be proactive and, and show initiative. Um, he shows initiative where he should... Um, where he should, he should wait and listen, um, and, and he makes these rash vows, um, and, and, and there's a giant mess ensuing. Um, never mind the tactical disadvantage that all of Israel is in at this moment. Um, still, at the end of this day in chapter 14, God gets exactly what God wants. Conquers the Philistines. I think there are times when whether it's the leadership of a church um, or it's uh, the leadership of a government, the leadership of a company um, or leadership of a family, um, that there can be a temptation um, to see the bumbling, sometimes failures, um, kind of the inconsistency. Um, maybe wives, you look at your husbands this way and you see um, a guy you love and really does a great job most of the time, but you see him fumbling. He does some things really well. He does some things really poorly. He, he, he works really hard in these ways. In other ways, you're like, what in the world's going on? And you look at all of it and, you, and you, you, you are tempted in that moment to fall into a place of despair and worry, which is the perennial sin of women and wives, by the way. And in that moment, he, here's something to rest your life on. God always gets what God wants. He will use fumbling leaders. He will use bumbling leaders. He, he will use leaders who are inconsistent. He will use leaders who fail at times, who, who, who do foolish things at times. He will use it to, to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish. And in this case, the bumbling of Saul should have, on appearances, um, easily led to the destruction of Israel, their complete and absolute defeat. But instead, God wields it, and he wields it alongside the faithfulness of Jonathan, and he accomplishes exactly what he wanted to do. The Philistines are defeated. Second, God's repenting versus our repenting. There is um, twice in this text, it says that God has repented of making Saul king. Um, and then Samuel also declares, um, God is not a man that he should repent. This has caused all kinds of uh, theological confusion. Um, there have been uh, some theologians, actually a fairly large growing number of theologians, um, who uh, 
seeing a text like this, use this as an excuse to, to, to trap God in kind of the space-time universe um, and, and to uh, present to us a God, the theology is called open theism, and to present to us a God who is um, trapped in the same kind of world that we are and is just reacting and interacting with the world um, just like we are. He becomes just like a really big, really smart version of us. Just kind of interacting, repenting, not repenting, changing his mind, flip-flopping, doing all those kind of things. Um, the, the Bible, we have to actually take the entire Bible to present to us the nature and the character of God. Um, and and uh, throughout all of church history, um, the universal testimony of the church is God is not bound by space and time. He lives outside of it and then chooses to interact in it. And when he interacts in it, um, he interacts with us. Uh, but he's not making decisions um, as a kind of reactivity to whatever it is that's happening in our lives, whatever it's happening in the world. Um, uh, one analogy used by John Frame to describe this, this uh, phenomenon um, is, it, it is if, it's as if Shakespeare wrote himself into Hamlet. But not just as like a character trapped in that story, but as the author of the story now appearing on the scene of the play. It's kind of hard to get our heads around, but that's, that's what you see happening throughout history is that God um, exists outside and above of all of time, all of history. Um, he, he's not just reacting. He's not like suddenly discovering new things about the world um, every few years. He sovereignly rules all of it, and then condescends to interact with people. Um, he bends to, to, um, to interact within space and time and history. And both are true. Um, another analogy used to describe this phenomenon, actually specifically talking about this text, um, is we say every morning, did you see the sunrise? I mean, I'll say in our family on vacation, almost every morning, we say, did you see the sunrise. Why does no one in my family say, Dad, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard? You should have said, did you see the earth circle spin this morning? The sun doesn't rise, doesn't go around the earth. The earth goes around the sun. And the earth spins, and that's why we have a sunrise. Um, like, we know what we mean, right? Like, you, you, if you said that to me, I would... I don't know what I would do, but I would be frustrated with you. <laughs> um, which is just guaranteed to mean my son is going to say it to me next time I miss in the sunrise. <laughs> but but the, the, the reality is, is that like, um, God um, the, the Bible describes God as um, what Samuel says here. He's not a man. He doesn't interact with the world like, a, like a, just a big, supersized, smart man does. I mean, he interacts with the world as God, as the one who sovereignly governs all things, whose providence um, reigns over all of history. And he bends to interact, and he bends, and, we, and that experience in the midst of history is a thing like this, where he says, I repent, I, I, I repent of making Saul king. Second, that was the second theological miscellany. Third, particularly having to do with this ban, destruction of Amalek in the city, the killing of every man, woman, child, and animal in it. There's been a lot of hand-wringing in recent decades about texts like this. 
about the judgments of God and about how things unfold. And really, it comes down to you have two choices. Um, Two choices that are going to be intimately connected with the main points I want to draw out here in a second. You can either explain away the God of the Bible, presume a kind of judgment and righteousness over the Lord of all the earth, presuming to call him unjust, or you can bow the knee to a God who is holy, who is gracious, and who is terrifying. But we, in this century as Christians, haven't spent nearly enough time simply coming face to face with texts like this. And so our relationship with God, our way of speaking about God and his holiness has become breezy, it's become airy, it's become um, uh, informal and friendly and we haven't come to terms with the fact that there is a God who is so absolutely holy, so absolutely righteous, so absolutely just that he is good and right to wipe out and destroy everything. Because we haven't come to terms with that, we have made the grace of God small. We've made the forgiveness of our sins small. And we have not felt the burden of warning our neighbors the promise of God is his wrath is coming and it is terrible. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that we love that you're here. And, and, I, and I would love to hold up to you the goodness of God and the beauty of God and the grace of God. He is the best thing imaginable. He is glorious and wonderful and good and his wrath against sin is terrifying. And it is perfectly just. And there is no court of appeals to appeal to outside of him. And in the face of that wrath, our only hope is to flee to him for mercy. And he promises to give it. Quickly, three things to take home. First, observe Saul's presumption and avoid it. Rather than him fighting against God's enemies, they have become his enemies. See, Saul in this text, and, and you see it both in chapter 14 And in chapter 15, Saul forgets that he is a servant of God for the people. And here's the thing. We do this all the time. Um, We have subverted um, the actual order of the universe that God has designed. And rather than us understanding the glory of what it means, the grace of what it means, that we've been redeemed and saved by God to be his children, to be his servants. We instead make God the servant, the chaplain of our own lives, our own dreams, our own desires. 
And so worship becomes about me. Obedience becomes about me. The teaching of scripture becomes about me. Rather than recognizing that there is a God who is good and glorious and is Lord over everything. Including you. We belong to God. We are his servants. Saul forgot that. He became large in his own eyes. Rather than being an emissary, a servant of the living God, he became king whom God existed to serve. Worship became rather rather than an acknowledgement that I belong to God, it became instead I'm a talisman to wield God to do my bidding. That's one. Two, this happens anytime this kind of presumption seeps in. See, Saul's word versus God's word. If this is true, if we are actually God's servants, and God isn't our servant, but we serve him, we've been bought by him and purchased by him and redeemed by him and reconciled by him, um, and if we belong to him, then his word, his word, his command, his law, his gospel, everything he says in this book must be preeminent over all of our words, all of our desires, all of our interpretations of the world, and everyone else's as well. That there is at the heart of Saul's fall a presumption that he is Lord, that he can do whatever it is that he wants, that God exists to worship him, that that the worship of God um, exists as a way of manipulating God to get what he wants. Um, And so he, he lowers God's words. He doesn't value God's words. He isn't careful to obey all of God's words. And why? Because he feared the people. And I'm afraid this is true for all of us. It happens everywhere in our day. The word of the Lord is softened. Some of it's hidden, some of it's tucked away. When we're asked what we believe about the world, we don't hold up to the world the glory of God's word, the wisdom of his commands, the the beauty of the gospel. Instead, we hold up our own philosophical ideas, maybe try to Christianize them here or there, and pastors and book writers and tweeters and all of those things do this continually, softening and chewing up the word of God and replacing it with their own words. Why? Why? fear the people. Fear being rejected, we fear being called a bigot. We fear our wives, we fear our husbands, we fear our children. Fear our employer, we fear we fear politicians. Fear not being liked. Last All of this then is grounded in the relationship between obedience and worship. Um, There is a foot in our day, a a pretty devastating misunderstanding about the nature of worship. Um, It it is either seen, we talked about this a little bit last week, that um, worship is seen 
particularly among those of us from the more reformed tradition, um, is primarily seen as just a formal process. You check the box, you do the thing, you sing good music, you, the, the right music, you say the right confession, you do the scripture reading, you do the thing, and then you do, and then you do, and then you, and then you go. And that's worship. Followed the right formal process, got the whole thing down. As long as you follow the right formal process, you're good, you've pleased God. That has a way of being lifeless, and by lifeless, I don't mean it doesn't stir your emotions enough. I mean that it, it, it can become a rote thing, a list of boxes you check over here that has zero impact on the, on the obedient, joyful obedience to the words of God that happen in the week. On the other hand, you have those who believe worship is an authentic emotional experience. And the measure of worship is, did I have an authentic emotional experience? Experience And so did the chord progression work? And was there enough smoke and fog um, coming up the aisle? And did the lasers really go when the guitar solo started? And did the worship experience stir in me the right authentic feelings? And after all, that's what real worship is. Real worship is, um, um, is, is a, an authentic set of emotions stirred mostly by music. And there is a disconnect there even between, um, uh, between what God actually requires, what God actually desires. At the heart of what Christian worship is, is a consecrating act, an act where we gather in the presence of God and there's a process he's given us, um, but um, with real faith and real belief, we confess together, I belong to you. All of my life is yours. All of my desires are yours. All of my gifts are yours. And if that's the case, oh, then we will obey. It's not that God doesn't want our worship. The only worship that is acceptable to God is that which produces Joyful obedience in the light of God's mercy. We find in this consecrating act a God who meets us, a God who washes us, a God who empowers us, finally a God who feeds us. God who provides for us a king, a king who won't presume upon the words of God, a king who does not leave us hungry and chasing after our enemies, um, but with a curse hanging over our head if we eat um, the good provision of God. No, instead, we find a God who provides for us a king who fights on our behalf and feeds us with his own body and blood. And so we come to this table. Now we know whose it is we belong to. May we know that even in eating this meal, we are united with Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day so that all of that terrible wrath might fall on him and not on us. And then partaking of this meal, we belong wholly, completely to God. Let's pray and prepare for communion.